Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can come together in this morning hour. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to take time out of our busy lives to be here. We're thankful that in a time of war that we can come together to seek your peace. We're thankful in a time of sickness that we can come here to seek spiritual health. And we're thankful in a time of material wealth that we can come here to seek spiritual wealth from your word. We pray that you would strengthen us in this day. We pray that you would help us to be yielded to your spirit. Pray that you would speak and not me, and that your word would go forth and that your name would be glorified. All these things we thank thee for and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read from Philippians 4 today. Um, this is a very well-known scripture, but uh, every time I come back to it, I see how much insight there is there, and um, I'm going to start with the first verse and read through the 23rd verse. Therefore, my brethren... Dearly beloved and long for, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudesis and beseech Syntithi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned, and received, and heard, and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. 
everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epiditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, when I read this chapter, it's easy to forget the context. Uh, Philippians is one of Paul's uh, prison epistles, actually the last along with Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And Paul was in uh, prison for, uh, I don't know, at least uh, several years here before he wrote this. If we go back to the, uh, the first chapter, um, and we look at some of that, uh, this is clear here. Um, but I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So how could the Apostle Paul write this? Was it merely positive thinking? If we um, go back to uh, some of the secular writings, I was uh, thinking of my, my eighth grade teacher, um, Mr. Reed, or uh, Brother Reed, as he liked to be called, um, because he was our soul brother um, in a Bill Clinton kind of way, I guess. And um, he taught us this poem in eighth grade. Many a race is lost before a step is run. Many a coward falls before his work's begun. Think big and your deeds will grow. Think small and you'll fall behind. Think that you can and you will. It's all in the state of mind. 
So one day in Sunday school, when I was in junior high, which is where I learned this poem, uh, one of my classmates expressed uh, an opinion that I thought was kind of negative. And so I went back to, uh, went back to this poem, to other line, another line of this poem that I quote, and I said, if you think you can, you can. And uh, like Peter, I was rebuked here as we, in the Bible class, and they said, you know, that's secular humanism thought. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't be implying that I shouldn't be quoting that in Sunday school, right? And uh, so as I've went through my life, you know, I've kind of had this, uh, I don't know, I've had, of course, being out in the secular humanist world, I've uh, been exposed to uh, a lot of the... Uh, the positivist um, thinking, and uh, my epistemology professor would gas that I'm using that word in this term because that's not the way it mean, what it means in epistemology, but I'm sorry, I diverge. Um, it's important that we, uh, that we do think about, uh, when we think about positive thinking, when we think about uh, our, our mindset, that we have to be clear that we are coming at this from a Christian worldview, and we have to be clear about the way we think of, think of this. Um, Brother uh, Dave last week, I believe, preached on Romans 12. Is that correct? And I want to go back to that, and uh, we talked about being transformed. And what I wanted to talk about, focus on today is the, the second part of that verse, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what I want to talk about today is the renewing of our mind, um, because uh, it's really important here that we, we think about this in a way that our mind is renewed through Christ and not through merely wishful thinking or thinking, uh, thinking good thoughts, although that may, be, that may be part of our, that is definitely part of what we need to be part of uh, a partial grasp of the truth that's in the gospel. Um, but when we think about, uh, think about the scriptures on renewing our mind, the first verse that always comes to me is uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Which, of course, even though I've marked it, I can't find it. Uh, there we go. Or I'm going to go back to 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There is a powerful war that goes on in our lives every day and it's for the dominance of our mind. And whether people outside of non-believers realize it or not, um, obviously my, uh, my teacher, uh, 
realized that this war was going on. Uh, the depths of the spiritual war, I do not know uh, if he realized that, but uh, in his life, he had grown up very poor, and uh, for him, uh, basketball became a way out of this, but uh, the lengths that he had to go to to play basketball in, in high school, uh, he, had to, uh, he had to traverse five miles from his home. He did not have a parent that could take him, and he had to get to basketball practice early in the morning every day. Um, and uh, his saving grace was, because the coach threatened to kick him off the team because he was being late to practice, was that uh, uh, one day a lady stopped and he hitchhiked a ride with her to practice and uh, she offered to, she said, I come through here every day and uh, I, I can give you a ride here if you're out there. She picked him up because it was raining and he was walking in the rain and uh, she took him, uh, took him to practice, and after that, uh, he rode with her to practice every day. Uh, he eventually got a scholarship to college and uh, was able to go on and uh, uh, become a very good college uh, player and even had a tryout with the Chicago Bulls um, and then settled into teaching and coaching. So... As we look around us, we see people every day that make these difficult experiences where it seems like they face, they face uh, crippling circumstances, they, create, they face obstacles that they can't get through. And uh, in the secular world, you know, some people are able to, quote, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps by uh, focusing their minds and training their minds and their bodies to be very disciplined. So as we look at this verse here in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we do see that aspect of discipline. We do that, see that aspect of having a disciplined mind, uh, focusing here on casting down the thoughts or the imaginations that are against God and bringing into captivity, taking captive these thoughts and bringing them unto the obedience of Christ. So I think this is one of the, the key differences here in merely focusing on a secular positive thinking and uh, what we as Christians are asked to, asked to do, we are asked to bring our thoughts into obedience to Christ. And uh, so how do, we, how do we do that, okay? Well, first of all... Um, you know, we have to think about, we have to know what, what, is in our, what is in our thoughts, right? So perhaps we're not even cognizant of our thoughts. Uh, some writers say, well, we should write down our thoughts to know what's there. We should capture those. Um, whatever it takes, somehow we have to recognize what's, what's in our thought life. What is going on in our thoughts and in our hearts? Are we... If we, we don't know that, then we aren't, if we aren't cognizant of that, then we obviously can't take them captive. But the things is, as, uh, as believers here, um, we, need to, we need to think about the, not only what we need to put off here, but also 
if we use the uh, put off, put on pr a principle, if we go back to Ephesians 4, uh, 22 through 24, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which, is, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we have to replace our old thoughts, our old conscience, with the, with the new thoughts and the new conscience, which are focused on righteousness and true holiness. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that we as humans, we are as far from righteousness and true holiness as it can get, right? Um, we know that uh, there's no good thing within us. We know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And we know that uh, even after we're converted, that our flesh and our blood do not, do not convert. So in spite of the fact that we, if we've uh, put on the mind of Christ, um, we know that our whole body our, our flesh is still, is still in the state that we have to come back and we have to continue to bring that into captivity, not only our thoughts, but our actions and our lives into conformance with the gospel. And uh, we know that as long as we're alive that we are going to face, uh, we are going to face a, a struggle with that. And... So another thing about our thought life, um, again, if we go back to Romans in the third verse of Romans 12, uh, God asks us to think soberly according to he's, as according to how he's dealt to every man the measure of faith. So first of all, we have to put on the new thoughts. We have to seek out the truth. We have to find the truth and get our minds set on that, get our minds set on the truth of the gospel that God's given us. And we also have to think soberly as he's given us the measure of faith. Sober thinking is difficult. And I don't mean that sober in the sense of not being drunken, but uh, it's difficult for us to... Uh, soberly evaluate our mindset, to soberly evaluate the way we think, because so much of our, our thinking has, is, has been uh, in the past, um, before we're converted, is structured around the events of our lives, the way we perceive events, um, and the way we create the stories of our lives, right? The stories that we tell, the things that we keep reinforcing. We may have dug in our dug a deep rut in our lives by, by the way we, the way we, uh, the quote, the self-talk that we do, the way we think, the way we, the things that we focus on, right? So from the uh, the secular secular humanist point of view here, when I was. Uh, Young in my career, we had this uh, great speaker come and talk to us at one of our work events, and his big thing was affirmations every day. Every day we needed to do our affirmations, um, you know, I, uh, 
I uh, think about your weaknesses, and, and I'm going to affirm the opposite. You know, you know Rod's, Rod, uh, I'm a poor communicator. Instead of saying to myself, I'm a poor communicator, I can't speak, you know, I, keep, uh, I can't pronounce words. Oh, you know, that's still true. But you're supposed to say every day, you know, I am a great communicator. I know how to pronounce every word in the English language. I am the best communicator there is in the world, and I am able to communicate my message in easy, digestible pieces that everyone will understand, and not only that, I will inspire people, and they will rise up, and they will follow me, and I will be a true leader in my company, and we will march on to greatness. Well, you get the point. Sorry. Got carried away that way there. Um, the thing is, though, from a Christian viewpoint, uh, the... Things that we speak to ourselves are very important in our lives. And we need to, to think about the way we talk. We talk, you know, when we find ourselves saying, you know, I'm nothing, it's okay, admit that. I, I am nothing in God's sight. I am incomplete. I am, a, I am a sinner. Such a worm am I. Go back to the science harp song. And yet... In spite of that, we have to look at the, we have to go forward, we have to look at the other side. The other side is that that's not the way, that's not what Christ wants me to be. Christ knows that. He died for me in my sins. He shed his blood for me, even though I was worthless, I was nothing in his sight. I was a mere human filled, sinful human. You know, and I have to be able to think about you know, God's sacrifice and that he loved me and that I have to find my, my self-worth. I have to find my affirmation in what Christ has done for me, in what he has done, not in what I can do. Um, I want to please him. I want to do what serves him. That is why I want, to, I want to speak the right things in my life. I want to uh, I want to be encouraging not only to myself but to others. It's not for me. It's not about me. It's got to be about Christ. And again, that is the you know the big difference that I find between what what uh, the world prescribes that we do and what we need to do as Christians from a quote affirmation or speaking truth, speaking encouragement to ourselves and to others. Um, and, you know, as we go through life, we, if you look at the, in the verses we read in Philippians, so Paul's, Paul's in this jail, right? And this, I mean, he's uh, confined, at least uh, chained to the soldiers there in Rome. And um, he's, he takes this situation that he's in, you know, he could have said, Hey, you know, I'm in prison. Woe is me. I'm sorry. I'm bad. It's terrible here. And yet uh, he's sitting here and back to the verses in chapter 1, verse 13. He's thinking about how his imprisonment um, is furthering the gospel, how Jesus's gospel is being furthered, not, not, uh, not, the suffering that it's causing him, but the way that God is using his suffering, his chains, his imprisonment to further the gospel. 
so that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all the palace and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he's not thinking about his suffering. He's focusing on how God is using him, is how God is working to spread the gospel in Rome. Go to verse 4 here. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. In chapter 4, verse 4, Philippians. Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. So back to the stories that we tell ourselves. You know, the thing is, the stories we tell ourselves, number one, they're not totally objective to begin with. We don't have a 360-degree view. Um, it's widely known that if you have uh, take, uh, take down uh, witnesses' uh, statements from an accident, if you have five people, you get five slightly different stories. You know, and especially, of course, if you're one of the people involved in the accident, you know, have you ever had to do this, fill out an accident report, and you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to be sober-minded, I'm trying to say exactly the truth, and yet your mind's sitting there thinking, oh, I want to shade, trying to say, well, you, you want to present the, I want to present the best, best case scenario here, I'd prefer not to have my insurance go up or whatever, right? So when we construct our stories, we have these, these, uh, these, uh, these conflicting, um, you know, be, besides, of course, you look at the, just the way the events might have taken place, it might have been foggy, it might have been, or, uh, eyesight might have been obscured, all these other things, and then we deal with the whole thing, it comes back to, well, what's, what's in our mind, am I, am I, can I really look at this, uh, evaluate this soberly or even-handedly, and say what I did, when I did it, and it gets, uh, Obviously, it gets very, uh, very complex. Um, so we as humans, we have a lot of temptation to uh, selectively reframe the way the story or the, our accounts are, are and fit them into our, our worldview, right? And uh, the other thing that happens here is that uh, pe people that study these things have noted that over time, our stories tend to morph or change, right? And that we tend to remember our stories differently if we look at how we told them at an earlier point in our life versus a later point. Um, I had a great aunt who was famous for her stories. And, uh, you know, the, uh, once she got into her 80s, some of the stories that I heard her tell when I was younger, you know, started to get more... Uh, I don't know, more fantastic, let's say, right? Um, so uh, she actually had this story about uh, the, uh, the uh, split between our church and the Apostolic Christian Church of America. And uh, um, by the time she was 80, the way it went, went like this is that there was an older sister in the congregation that all the, everyone, everyone in, you know, 
uh, looked up to and thought highly of her spiritual worth. And the, uh, the elders had her come and speak in an elder meeting, and they asked her what the problem was, was why there was a split in the churches. And she said, because there's not enough love. There's just not enough love. And so I said, Mom, I think the story's changed a little. My mom said, well, you know, I think the germ of that is really true. I think that, uh, as I understand it, that some of the elders did come out and speak and seek her advice in private, and uh, that is exactly what she told them. Okay. But uh, the thing is, you know, our, as humans, we tend to distort our stories, again, from a bringing our thoughts into captive. Our thoughts into captive were instructed to think soberly and be very disciplined in our thought life. And uh, we, of course, when we, we talk about stories, we share things that have happened, we share events, and we tend to try to build those into our worldview. Well, how can we fit this? This seems like, you know, especially as believers, you know, we struggle sometimes, well, you know, why, well, not just as believers, but why do good things happen to bad people? Things like that, right? So somehow we have to try, we feel like, well, we have to try to, we have to try to uh, take these stories that we have, these terrible things that happened, and somehow show the good that came out of them, right? So there's kind of a, uh, I don't know, you know, in, in one way we have to look at the positive the positive side of things, the other thing, hand, we have to be very sober and evaluate and make sure that we're not mangling the truth in uh, the way that we, we tell our stories or that we try to fit our stories into our, our world view. Because our stories, in a sense, become parables or almost self-fulfilling prophecies that we tell ourselves, right? That, uh, you know, I don't know. You've probably been around people that... Uh, you know, they come to you, and uh, every time you see them, they are remembering some slight that happened to them 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you're thinking, you know, this person, what, the, the, the people are all dead. They, they, you, you've never been able to move on. Why not? Why can't you move on? You know, and I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to dismiss, dismiss um, people's personal hurts and uh, the things that people might have suffered, you know. But you know, sometimes it's easy, easier for other people to see than for us to see that. Hey, you know, we're remaining stuck. We're we're. We're still, we, we've never given these things over to the Lord. We haven't released them. We're still holding on to them for years and years and years. And it's hurting our spiritual life, right? You know, we can't, we can't let old sins, old hurts, old failings, um, we can't hold on to those forever, you know, and I don't think God wants us to. God, if we're the person causing the hurt, if we're the person with the sin, obviously we have to confess our sins. And, it, you know, we're promised that if we confess our sins, that he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the thing is, you know, we have to move on from there. We can't, can't stay stuck in the past. 
Um, you know, the, uh, the Apostle Paul here, also in Philippians, back in 3.13, says, Brethren, I count, my, count myself... I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know, forgetting sometimes is a great thing, right? Sometimes forgetting the past, you know, after we've, confessed our sins, and God's forgiven them, you know, it's time to move on. It's time to look for the next mark. It's time to ask God, where do you want me to go from here, right? I can't change the past. I can't be stuck in the past because if I'm stuck, I'm not going to make any progress spiritually. I'm not going to be able to go forward, right? And if we look at these verses here, you know, We need to reach forth under those things that are before. We need to have a sense, look for the mark, uh, the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We may not know what that is exactly. And again, as humans, we're imperfect, but we got to make a step towards that direction. we got to try to step out in faith, right? And we've got to take those thoughts that we bring into captive, and then we have to take our emotions captive, and we have to take faith and follow the truth in order to bring the emotions into line. In uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a a Verdict, hidden, hidden way in the back in an appendix someplace is this very, to me, very important graphic. It shows a choo-choo train. Oh, at least that's what we call it when I was a kid. It shows a train engine, and it's marked truth. Then it shows a coal, a coal, uh, coal car marked faith, and then it shows the caboose marked feelings. And, you know, our faith has to be based in the truth but the feelings, a lot of times people let their feelings drive the train instead of the truth. And a lot of times people try to do it the opposite way, where they have their feelings that are driving, driving their lives, driving their thoughts, driving their, their actions, and then the faith kind of comes along with the feelings, and if the feelings are good, then the faith is strong, and the feelings are down, then the faith is down, Right? And somewhere along there, I don't know, truth, uh, truth gets completely lost. I think it falls off the train. But anyway, the important thing is, is that we can't, faith is not a feeling. We can't live by our feelings. We have to take our feelings and our thoughts captive, and we have to follow after the truth. And uh, as uh, Eugene was told in Adventures in Odyssey, you know, faith Faith is the melding of the mind and the emotion, right? Faith is where those come into intersect and come together. 
And that is what we are seeking to do when we think soberly, when we're looking at examining our, our lives, when we're examining our hearts, that uh, somehow we have to make sense of that, that we have to not be driven by the emotions, that we have to be looking forward to the truth, and that we have to have the faith that connect those two cars together, and that we are driven ultimately by the truth and not by the emotions of our, our feelings. So if we want the peace of God that passes all understanding, that's going to keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, we need to think on these things. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. The last thing is praise. You know, as Christians, we know we're supposed to be joyful. We know we're supposed to thank God. You know, sometimes you, think, you say, well, you know, the more, it's almost like the more, the more uh, the difficulty we suffer, the more we, we should be thankful. Yes, that's true, but our... Our thanks is based on who God is. Just like we've been just studying in, in uh, our midweek Bible study, our thanks is not based, we're not thanking God because he's sending us terrible things. We're thanking God because we know who he is. We know that he's just. We know that he's righteous. We know that he's not going to give us more than we can face. We know that he's going to provide for us whatever our needs are and that we trust him that he's going to honor our faith and that he's going to deliver us. He's going to deliver our mind from these thoughts that tempt us, that test us every day, and that he's going to give us joy in him and that he's going to make us righteous before God, right? We know that we can't achieve righteousness with God, but we know that Jesus has achieved righteousness with God because he's become our sacrifice. He took all our sins on us. He sacrificed his life for our sins that he might become the righteousness of God. And when God looks at us, he's not seeing our sins. He's seeing the righteousness of Christ. And finally, you know, ultimately in our mind, that is the, maybe the most important truth that we need to think about, that it's not us. It's not our sin that God sees. It's Christ's righteousness. If we've confessed our sins, if we've repented of our sins, God sees our righteousness and not our sinfulness. Amen.